Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. <laughs> Sorry for the uh, minor technical difficulty of experiencing. Um, welcome back. Um, I think it's our tradition or custom or practice to go around the room and say our names. All the above. Uh, I'm George. Jason. Greg. Frank. My name is Rich. John. Grisha. My name is Cass. Mike. I'm Jim. I'm Bob. Jeff. My name is Jerry. Matthew. Larry. Ricardo. <laughs> Jack. Samuel. I'm Hal. John. I'm Richard. I'm Andreas. <coughs> and our speaker today, many of you know, is David Lewis. Um, David Lewis has been following the Dharma path for 45 years. Wow. And had a Insight meditation and enjoys sharing the Dharma at several sanghas around the Bay Area. And a proud longtime member of GPF. Welcome, David. Thank you. Lovely being here this morning. Um, today I wanted to uh, talk about harmony. It's just been on my mind for a while. Perhaps because we live in such unharmonious times, disharmonious times. Uh, I can't remember quite where I ran across the principle of harmony, because it's not a particularly Buddhist one. Um, Buddhism has different words for what the Chinese uh, refer to as harmony. Uh, but somewhere uh, a month or so ago, I ran across uh, a definition or a term for harmony, and I thought, it just called to me. It's, my heart went out to it. Wouldn't it be great if harmony was an organizing principle in our culture, um, as it was in ancient China? Um, harmony is the organizing principle around Confucianism, um, as I'll talk about in a few minutes. So it's something I've never talked about before and never researched much. And um, it's not exactly a part of my practice because harmony, like equanimity in Buddhism, harmony is it's not a practice, it's more of an outcome of practice, result of practice. And as you know from my previous talks, I generally tend to like to talk about my practice. I can speak much more from my heart. So I'm a little bit more in my head about harmony. Um, 
forgive me for that and bear with me as that means I'm going to read a little bit more than I usually do. Not my area of expertise. The definition, the Webster's definition, de definition of harmony is a combination of parts into a pleasing or orderly whole. Congruity. The word harmony comes from um, the Greek. Harmonium, meaning joint. Joint like this is a joint. Um, agreement, concord. But also from the Greek verb, um, harmozo, to fit together. Again, to joint, like a joint. To fit together a joint. So I went looking for the Pali word, Pali being the, uh, the Buddhist language uh, for harmony, and there is one, and it means um, it's samabhaya, uh, not a very commonly used word, at least I haven't run across it very much in my Buddhist studies, but it has exactly the same uh, definition. It means to join, the joint. So synonyms in English for harmony are accord, Agreement, peacefulness, amity, amicability, friendship, fellowship, concord, cooperation, understanding, consensus, unity, sympathy, support, unison, unity, <clears throat> concert, oneness, and synthesis. And I uh, was reflecting on those synonyms uh, for a day or so, and it occurred to me that that all four of the Buddha's Brahma-viharas are included in that list of synonyms. All four of the, the Buddha's uh, immeasurables, sometimes they're called, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, are included in that list of, of synonyms for harmony. So it's, it's my conclusion, my non-scholarly, uh, non-academic, uh, personal conclusion that um, Chinese concept of harmony um, is roughly equivalent to our Brahma-viharas in Buddhism, um, and especially equanimity, as I'll talk about in a bit. So I think, um, I'm making the assumption that's the reason why there's not a word for, that's commonly used for harmony in, in uh, Pali, it's because we have these other concepts, Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, uh, and equanimity. Joy. So, as I said, um, harmony is a Confucian ideal, and Confucius uh, was a pretty interesting teacher in, in China. Uh, one of the more interesting things to me about Confucius, Confucius is that he's a direct contemporary of Buddha. He quite possibly lived at the same time. Um, they lived during a time that uh, Karen Armstrong who wrote a book about it, uh, called The Axial Age, mm -hmm. uh, which is a period of history from about uh, 200 B.C. to about 800 B.C., uh, several hundred years, when uh, the Buddha lived, uh, Confucius lived, the early Greek philosophers were uh, operating in Greece, um, plus I think maybe Zoroaster in Persia. So it was a, it was a, the axial age was a, 
creative, fundamental time in the development of world religion in many different countries. So Confucius lived about the same time as the Buddha. And Confucianism, like Buddhism, um, is sometimes referred to as religion, but more often as a philosophy or a humanistic or rationalistic religion. Um, Confucianism, like Buddhism, doesn't talk about God. It's a way of governing or simply a way of life. Um, and of course, as we've all talked about before, uh, the Buddha didn't set out to, um, to, to found a new religion, and he certainly didn't call anything Buddhism. That happened. The word Buddhism actually didn't come along until the, the white colonialists um, discovered it and gave it a name, because every belief system, from the colonial point of view, had to, had to be an ism. Um, it was a path to be followed. The Buddha simply offered a path, um, as did Confucius. A way of life. The difference, um, subtle difference, between Confucianism and Buddhism, or what Confucius offered as a path and what the Buddha offered a path, is that Confucius emphasized um, family life and social concord. Um, Confucianism and the idea of harmony in the community um, includes government. Whereas my understanding that um, the Buddha talked more about um, psychology and spiritual aspects of concord, at least when it comes to equanimity. So the worldly concern of Confucianism rests on the belief that human beings are fundamentally good and teachable, improvable, like Buddhism, and perfectible through personal and communal endeavor especially self-cultivation and self-creation. Confucian thought focuses on the cultivation of virtue in a morally organized world. So in the long history of Chinese civilization, harmony, even when Confucianism was out of favor, uh, harmony has always been the most highly valued virtue as equanimity is in Buddhism. It encompasses the fundamental principles of nature, society, and humanity. It's also a prerequisite for cultivating one's morality, protecting one's family, governing one's nation, and stabilizing the world. Harmony is the core, at the core, of Chinese traditional culture. It strikes me as being a profoundly beautiful thing to have your organizing principle of your culture, ancient China, be harmony. It's not uh, like equanimity. Harmony is not an idealistic concept. It's pragmatic. Naturally arises when we cultivate the right conditions in all aspects of our life and the world. All aspects of our life and the world. So one aspect is psychologically. Harmony means well-being, equanimity, self-restraint. Physically, in the body, harmony is balance, health. Ethically, most importantly, morality or 
what we call sila in the Pali language, is the basis for all skillful action in harmonious interpersonal relations. Non-harming, compassion, right conduct, restraint, simply keeping the Buddha's precepts contributes to harmony, leads to harmony, internally and externally. Harmony in our own life and harmony in our relationships and harmony in the world. The precepts, uh, just to remind you, are refraining from harming living beings, other living beings, refraining from taking what is not freely offered, refraining from false speech and gossip, refraining from sexual misconduct, refraining from intoxicants that lead to, that inhabit, inhibit mindfulness, the Buddhist precepts, lead to harmony. And finally, well, probably not finally, there's more aspects of harmony I'm probably not covering here, environmentally. Uh, harmony in environmental terms means recognizing the, the, the web of life is a miracle of harmony. Interconnectedness of all beings. Living in harmony with nature rather than trying to dominate it. Somebody like Joe talk about harmony and music. Whole another um, take on the concept of harmony, which I'd actually like to hear about sometime. So especially regarding ethics, um, I ran across a quote um, a while back, actually, uh, this is a quote from Roshi Bernie Glassman, who just died about a month ago. Um, he's a Zen teacher um, and a uh, did a lot of engaged Buddhism. Uh, and just after the 2016 election, this is how uh, Bernie Glassman responded. The world is what the world is. And I will work the best way I can to do the healing I can to take loving actions. That was his response to what he considered the disaster of the election. The world is what the world is and I will work the best way I can to do the healing I can to take loving actions. It's a harmonious response. The most interesting thing that I ran across um, studying up on harmony is that um, keeping harmony, recognizing harmony, recognizes differences. You can't have harmony without difference. No differences, no harmony. Seeking harmony, but keeping differences, is used as a standard to distinguish a gentleman from a petty man in Confucianism. Harmony but difference, it's a quote, harmony but difference, is to pursue an inner balance, not agreement on the surface. It is admitting the difference and diversity among all things and at the same time recognizing their interconnectedness. So harmony is reliant on differences. It doesn't try to erase difference. It doesn't mean we all agree. Uh, and I found that something uh, really worthwhile reflecting on, is that you can have a culture with a lot of diversity, a lot of differences, political differences, cultural differences, um, 
and you can find harmony there. Harmony is possible. Something that simply doesn't exist in our culture, that concept. Um, so I'm promoting it. <laughs> Robert Thurman, the um, scholar of Tibetan Buddhism, said, when you understand interconnectedness, it makes you more afraid of hating than of dying. When you understand interconnectedness, it makes you more afraid of hating than dying. And another quote along the same lines from the great 20th century Dharma master, Albert Einstein. A human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feeling as something separated from the rest a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to an affection for the few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion and embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. It's a beautiful quote from Albert, Albert Einstein talking about interconnectedness and harmony and difference, accepting differences. So, um, in my reflections on harmony, um, I, I kept coming back to, as I said before, the Buddha's Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, um, and especially equanimity. Equanimity uh, comes from the Latin equus, balanced, even, and animus, spirit, a balanced, even spirit, balanced spirit. Mind, balanced mind, internal state, mental calmness, evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations, especially when there's difference. Synonyms for equanimity are Composure, calm, poise, self-possession, balance, serenity. A lot of the same words as um, synonyms for harmony. So it seems to me that equanimity um, in our Buddhist practice is harmony internalized. It's internalized, internalized harmony. It's considered in Buddhist practice, my understanding, to be one of the highest states of, um, of, of mind, most valued state of mind, um, valued more highly than happiness. Because happiness is a changing thing. Happiness comes and goes. It's not that happiness is not valued in Buddhism. It's, happiness is great, but it's temporary. And it's usually dependent on something. It's usually conditioned. Whereas equanimity, if it arises from a practice of simply watching the changing nature of things in the moment as we're trained in our meditation practice, um, equanimity can be, uh, can be there whether things are going well for you or not, whether things are going well in the world or not. Um, whether you're happy or sad, 
you can still have some equanimity. It's the pinnacle of the Brahma Viharas. Each one of the Brahma Viharas, as you probably know, has phrases associated with it so that they can be practiced. To cultivate that desired state, whether it's metta or compassion or joy or equanimity. The phrases for equanimity typically are you are the owner of your own karma. Or if you apply it to yourself, I am the owner of my own karma. You are the owner of your own karma. Think about using these phrases with somebody that's difficult in your life. Or even somebody you don't know that might be in the news. (laughs) You are the owner of your own karma. Your happiness or unhappiness depends on your own actions and not my wishes. No matter how I might wish things to be otherwise, things are as they are. Although I wish only the best for you, I also know that your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions and not on my wishes for you. Whether I understand it or not, Things are unfolding according to their lawful nature. This acceptance that things are unfolding according to their lawful nature seems to be uh, an aspect of harmony. As I said, uh, the reason this confluence of harmony and equanimity are speaking to me is because Mm -hmm. I don't see that reflected much in our own culture. Our consumer culture does not value or promote either harmony or equanimity. It trains and conditions conditions us every day to believe that we don't have enough. We're not willing to accept, let alone be grateful for, what we have. We crave more stuff, seek more stimulation, And our default setting often seems to be agitation. So following the Dharma path is what the Buddha offered to us in practice to free us from suffering. From our cultural point of view, it feels like swimming against the stream. It's a phrase that the Buddha, um, phrase that exists in the suttas, against the stream against the stream of our cultural conditioning. Um, I think that's true for harmony as well. It's like practicing against the stream, swimming against the stream. But with practice, at least in my experience, we start to see our preferences changing. We choose silence over noise. We prefer stillness over stimulation. We appreciate spaciousness more than stuff. I don't know if this is your experience. The Brahma Viharas naturally arise out of practice. It's not something that uh, one has to strive for. And the same thing's true for harmony. It's not something to strive for. It's something that arises out of practice, quite naturally. It's simply the practice of being with what's happening in the present moment and noticing the changing nature, the empty nature, a phenomenon as we sit quietly. Both equanimity and harmony arise from 
an understanding of the conditionality, impermanence, and interrelatedness of things. Those are core insights that tend to arise from Buddhist practice. Conditionality, impermanence, and interrelatedness of things. So if we want to promote harmony in the world, it's best to start with ourselves. One way that we can do that is um, what we do every week here at GBF and many other sanghas is we offer merit, merit of our practice. There's a lot of different ways of using the merit phrases or composing of merit phrases. But here's what I might suggest for cultivating harmony. May I be safe from danger and harm. May I be healthy in body and mind. May I live with peace and ease. May I abide in harmony with all beings. May all beings be safe from danger and harm. May they be healthy in body and mind. May all beings coexist with peace and accord. May they abide in harmony with nature. So, either reflecting on the precepts or using the merit phrases might be a good balance to the disharmony that exists in our daily lives, especially when we confront the news. We can generate some harmony in ourselves, and that's going to have an impact on other people. So, that's what I have to offer. Harmony, humble thoughts, something that uh, I'm not an expert on. I'd like to hear uh, your thoughts, feedback, uh, questions, but any experience you might have with practice of harmony. Please. Thank you, David. Um, I appreciate a lot of uh, your comments. Um, what I kept thinking that was, and maybe this is a footnote, is uh, that uh, particularly Confucianism um, and its uh, current reincarnation in China, I mean, harmony could be thought of as in political terms, but as to say a kind of Han hegemony. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. China historically, yeah. that harmony, those differences were suppressed because people followed rules. Yeah. And if you stepped outside the rules, you were killed. Yeah. So, I mean, there is a caveat to that, I would say. Um, the other kind of thought I had is, I think you have to be careful with harmony because um, it may have fit in in that world, uh, again, sociopolitically, but uh, in the context of democracy, and especially populist democracy that we're having to deal with now, um, I think, uh, anyway, it needs to be uh, calibrated, that's all. I, I think the point is well taken. Um, I just, uh, I just uh, offer those uh, footnotes, whatever they are for. I had exactly the same thought. Um, it's interesting, from, especially comparative religion, it's interesting to me how um, our traditional religions have been 
all co-opted by political systems. Mm -hmm. um, the, the reason I was emphasizing the point that originally with Con Confucius, that harmony was all about differences and respected differences and recognized that there's different mm -hmm. is because that's pretty much the opposite of the way the contemporary Chinese government is, is reviving Confucianism. Look what's happening in the Uyghurs in, yeah. in Xinjiang. So the, the metaphor or simile that I came up with, with my own mind is, is that, you know, that there's people that complain, that, that, that don't complain, there's people that describe our culture as a Christian culture for kind of the same reasons. Yeah. I would be fine if our culture really was following the precepts of Christ. As a Buddhist, I'd be okay with that. But I don't think that that's exactly what they mean. I don't think we're... So I think that's what's happened in China. Is um, uh, Confucius was very much out of fashion um, during the, the, the communist years, and now it's being Confucianism is being reintroduced um, to, to uh, instill order, instill order, and nationalism. Mm -hmm. you know, this is a Chinese thing. So um, that happens a lot in politics and, and history. But I don't think in any way that it um, clouds the original mm. mission of Confucianism, Christianity, Buddhism, or you know, religions get used. Mm. Thank you for that. Yeah, well, I was, I'm, I was thinking along the same lines. Is, it, like with equanimity, it seems like that's something I can work on in myself. It's like to kind of cultivate a, non-attachment um, whereas harmony kind of seems to have a bias to against uh, disruption and towards conformity but I think it's maybe a shading it's it's not quite there isn't as much difference there as I, I'm maybe initially feeling about that Seems like yeah. harmony is more social. I get that. And yeah. whereas yeah. it seems like equanimity is something that. Well, like for me, I think both of them are the result of. of um, I, I forget, did you say letting go? Or, yeah. Uh, they're right. the result of practice. Um, you know, we, we don't say, okay, I'm going to sit down and practice equanimity today. We practice um, letting go and noticing the way things are. Um, uh, and it, so I think the same thing's true for harmony. Is is we don't instill harmony. Harmony is the result of um, mm -hmm. the, from a governmental or social point of view. It's it's the result of very wise leaders um, um, practicing just as a democracy in our country. Um, when I was trying to think about a leader in our recent history that, that kind of embodied harmony. You might disagree with us, but Jimmy Carter came to mind. Mm -hmm. That was beautiful, David. Thank you. Um, I really like the word harmony, too. Uh, I, I've often thought of synchronicity or sync to synchronize and uh, blend, like in the martial arts sense. Or, um, with, but you know, it strikes me that what you're talking about is 
one that they can observe in practices, it seems that that's what a practice does is synchronize the mind and the body and brings harmony within oneself. And so therefore, it's harmony with oneself, not to be blasphemous, but um, inner harmony uh, is after it starts with us. That, that seems to me to be also be a definition of equanimity to me, mm-hmm. inner harmony. Yeah, so thank you for that. It's just it's not a concept that we usually work with. So it's yeah. um, basically that's why I wanted to offer it this morning. Is, you know, what do you think Great of harmony? <laughs> thank you, David. Uh, thank you, talk inspired me, and I also wondered if you can say where in this axial age the other great Chinese mystic uh, Lao Tzu occurred uh, was he part of this age? <laughs> um, I believe I might be wrong but I believe that Lao Tzu was somewhat earlier that's my, my yeah and um, Lao Tzu it's credited as founding Taoism. I mean, again, he didn't, I don't think Lao Tzu, we're not even sure who it was. Yeah. Um, but he didn't say, I'm going to found Taoism. That's, <laughs> that's a belief system. <laughs> but, but there are writings. Sorry? Somebody, there are writings. From yes. And um, it's something I'd really personally like to learn more about is the way these different Chinese systems uh, came together, including mm-hmm. Buddhism in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that's, that's really fascinating that's happening in the Buddhist world today, we have a couple of minutes to talk about it, is um, there are Buddhist scholars, including um, a monk called Analyo, uh, but also Stephen Batchelor and um, John Peacock, who's a, a gay English Buddhist teacher, who are looking at um, early Buddhist texts in mm-hmm. China. What was what was transferred to China from India by by Buddhist missionaries um, is something that we haven't um, in the Western world we haven't really looked at until very recently. Uh, we relied on the Pali texts, which mostly came to us through Sri, Sri Lanka, it's where much of the translation of the classical Pali texts happened. But um, those the polytexts were tr- translated um, several hundred years after the Buddha lived, as were the Chinese teachings. And one of the interesting things is they were translated about the same time. So um, there's a theory, I think. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong, John. There's a theory that um, that if you really want to know what the Buddha taught. Most closely, in his time, without a lot of elaboration, that um, it's just as accurate to look at the Buddhist translations of, of what they call the Agamas as it is to look at the Pali translations of what we call the Nikayas. They're just different translations of um, the same teachings that 
In one case, the, the teachings went to Sri Lanka and got translated. In another case, they went to China and got translated. And so what these translators are doing today, as we speak, is comparing the Chinese texts with the Pali texts and coming up with um, sometimes a new and unique twist on what the Buddha taught um, in his own time. So if you're an originalist, or a fundamentalist Buddhist, <laughs> as, I, as I claim to be, um, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting study to look at Buddhism in China. But Buddhism in China was also influenced by uh, Confucianism and Taoism. And those influences on Buddhism um, informed what became known as in, 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 uh, Chan, Chan Buddhism in China, which of course became Zen. In Japan, so Zen, Zen kind of went through the filter. It was Buddhism that went through the filter of Taoism in China. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, I, I, um, this is very interesting. Um, thank you. Um, from what I've read, I want to recommend a book called Creation by Gore Vidal about a <laughs> Greek diplomat in the time of Socrates who visited around the world and met both the Buddha and Confucius. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite wonderful. And he preferred Confucius personally. Gore did. Gore. Well, his character is divine. But um, it's called Creation. But it's, it's, from what I've read, it's been fascinating that it's sort of a, a sturdy stool in Chinese culture of um, Taoism as the universal relatedness concept. and. Um, uh, Confucianism is for order in the family and in society, and um, Buddhism was for internal um, harmony and, and growth. And, um, and China had extraordinary <coughs> continuity because of these things for like 2,000 years. Um, it's, um, but. Confucianism, as, as magnificent it was, and Confucius was great, and his translation of the I Ching is unparalleled in terms of insight. And, oh, I forgot. Who's, who's Confucius? Yeah. Um, I believe it is not just theory that Jesuit missionaries in China in the 1500s sent back translations of Confucianism to Europe that strongly um, affected the development of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So the Confucius' sense of the superior man as one who was unified and publicly servant and good dad and all that stuff um, informed that emerging understanding of what uh, political order and culture could do for the individual. Um, so it's interesting. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for showing up. <laughs> I didn't know that. It's kind of amazing how people got around yeah. uh, mm -hmm. in the centuries before Christ. Mm -hmm. Matteo Ricci was the Jesuit who got a, he learned Chinese when he got there, and then he gained influence um, by teaching um, European mnemonic methods like a memory palace of certain groups of knowledge in different rooms in your mind to help um, Mandarin students cram 
for their three-day ordeal of right. writing out all the sacred texts of China. And the examinations. Own. Yeah, right. And, um, uh, but he also brought um, technology of how to build fountains to China. <laughs> <laughs> they also built the Sun Palace. Yeah. Hmm. Where's the bread Please. Bread? 1816. I'm a student of the sacred psychology of the Enneagram. But the prototype, archetype of all of all types, at the top of the Enneagram is type nine, which is a very has a very inclusive, kind of harmonious orientation. The false self of that, and that the Enneagram identifies our our the false structure of all types in our attempt to um, be in contact with our true nature. But so from the false self, the harmony, the orientation towards harmony creates a lot of problems because it doesn't recognize the individual. But the true awake perspective from the nine is one of inclusion. One of the natural talents of nines is to be the mediators, to bring different perspectives together as the whole to you know, solve problems. The challenge is to remember themselves and to include all points of view. So it's not about the, you know, the attempt to um, um, push down differences, but to be able to see see the whole perspective in an inclusive way. And, and it seems to me that um, another aspect of the nine is the true being, the beingness which is um, such a contrast to the orientation of our own society, which is about the individualism, which uh, you know, um, causes a great deal of damage or hurt. And problematic. Asserting our individualistic uh, needs and uh, egoic desire to be successful at the cost of the whole. So it's, a, it's, a good, uh, it's another good uh, place to study yeah. This issue. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. It just goes to show that it's all Dharma. <laughs> <laughs> Dharma isn't just what the Buddha taught. Dharma is the the nature of things that it gets reflected in, in these different belief systems in different countries. And help. Uh, it seems to me that <clears throat> this is all encased in this paradox in which one has to hold. In, this, in the same space and time, both the whole and all its individual parts. And it's a paradox to recognize one without the other, or with the other, because you either, in, you either totally concentrate on individualism and the individual at the expense of recognizing the wholeness of all existence. Or you go so far into wholeness that the individual is neglected, and there's a there's a problem there too. It's just I, I struggle with that paradox, holding that paradox, yeah. which is non-dualism, you know. Right. And there's a lot of different that paradox shows up in a lot of different ways. The in the Satipatthana Sutta where the basically the Buddha taught meditation or what we should be paying attention to. He, over and over again he says 
look at this internally and externally. All these principles are, are true internally and externally. Um, I think it's along the same lines of what you just described, at least as I, as I understand it. And I don't know if it's a paradox. Well, to a fragmented mind. <laughs> I share your fragmented mind. <laughs> we all share fragmented mind. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Al. Anyone else? Please. I'm afraid what I'm about to say may reflect my ignorance and lack of study, but first I want to thank you. I had really never thought about harmony and the concept of it. Not, not thought about? Harmony. Harmony, yeah. And while you were talking, I got this sense that equanimity and harmony seem to be different aspects of some common element or concept for which I haven't heard a name. And for me, equanimity is an internal connection, and this goes opposite to what you and others have said, equanimity is an internal connection, whereas harmony is an external connection. But somehow they're connected by being part of some same idea, some same concept. But I have no idea what that is, and I don't know if anyone's ever thought about that before, and if it makes any sense. Well, yeah, thank you for that. It it feels... Those two concepts, the way you put it, it feels very healing to me. It's, it's the reason I'm kind of drawn to, to this exploration of harmony, is it feels healing to me in our times. And certainly, if you look at the history, the very, very long history of China, you know, 5,000 plus years, um, they had a lot of rough times too. These systems address. Thank you, David. We have a room full of Dharma teachers. Audiences? We have a host. Hey, yeah, here I am. Um, <laughs> actually, I do have a little one now. If any of you have nothing to do this evening, um, I have a friend, Joshua Raul Brody, who's a Bay Area musical oh. treasure. And uh, uh, around this time of the year, he puts together a little show called uh, End of the Year Clearance Sale. Which is End of the Year Clearance. Clearance Sale, which is just uh, basically people that he's accompanied throughout the year are invited to come and sing a song. And I'll be singing the song, and uh, it's free, and it's at the right spot uh, on 17th and Folsom tonight at 7 p.m. 17th and Folsom. Yeah. Is it the R I G H T or W R I G H T? It's R I T E. That's how right it is. <laughs> and um, I, I can guarantee that there'll be melody and probably some outbreaks of harmony. So I am your host, and uh, there are snacks out there uh, just waiting to be eaten, and there's hot water for tea, and when you're done with your cups, uh, just put them in the sink and I'll deal with them. Also, I will be carrying around the Donna Bowl. Um, Donna is the poly for giving. 
and uh, your donations help uh, sustain the Sangha as well as uh, um, help us with our uh, uh, Larkin Street dinner, uh, paying for our speakers, the rent, and also our newsletter. Uh, if you would like to uh, be on our mailing list, uh, not for the newsletter, but just on <coughs> for some uh, uh, information, there's a sign-up sheet. And rumor has it that at 12.30, sometimes <laughs> people uh, convene outside uh, uh, and go out and have uh, lunch or brunch. I think that's it. I think Bravo. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and our speaker next week, if I can see it, <laughs> is uh, J.D. Doyle. J.D. Doyle serves as a core teacher at the East Bay Meditation Center <clears throat> and has served as a board member and was the co-founder of the LGBTQ Meditation Group and on and on and on. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.